Welcome to the Told You So podcast. I am Brink. And I'm Carla. And today we're going to be talking about free speech. Are we now? <laughs> <laughs> if you feel free to do so. No, uh, <laughs> obviously this is a pretty uh, controversial issue on several fronts. I mean, um, there's uh, the technological front where there's a whole battle over um, the limits of free speech and the, the meaning of free speech in online discourse. Um, you know, where are the lines between platforms uh, can they be held to the same standard as governments uh, as far as requiring that people uh, be able to speak freely on their platforms? Um, there's a campus aspect uh, where I think Carla has some numbers that we're going to talk about that are kind of shocking about the campus uh, climate about free speech. Um, yeah, the kiddos apparently <laughs> do not like free speech anymore. <laughs> the kids are not all right, is what you're saying? The <laughs> kids are not all right. But uh, So that's one aspect. And then, and, and then a third aspect is... Uh, Really, in the in the more general political discourse, things you can say and things that you can't say, um, and how things and maybe this is a little bit outside of the topic, but I think that it's well within it. Um, the whole concept of of dog whistles of uh, arguments as sort of a, a, a way to convey your true feelings by using a legitimate sounding argument. I think to a certain extent, there's a free speech uh, implication in that where you can't use certain arguments or concepts because they're assumed to be a Trojan horse for nefarious uh, motivations. And and would you put sort of value signaling in, the, in that category or are dog whistles and value signaling different things? Uh, no, no, they're, they're, well, it's like the flip sides of the coin. So virtue signaling or whatever would be, you know, I, I openly support this thing that I know people around me support and like. Therefore, I feel you know the glow of social acceptance and uh, and warmth when I use <laughs> those signals. Versus uh, dog whistling is more. I'm secretly communicating to my people, and I'm signaling my secret allegiance to their secret plans. So, and would you think <laughs> it's it's fair to say that really all of that is just purely in the eye of the beholder, right? Because in some ways yeah. we're talking about ascribing intent. Well, right, and I was, I was about in, to say. In some, like, weird way where it's like, oh, I know what you yeah. mean well, when you say this. Frequently it is. And actually, I, uh, this will wrap back around. I mean, all of these things are interconnected, obviously. I think it goes right back to the to the campus issues, which we'll, we'll get to shortly. Um, but there's this concept uh, that's become very popular since the 90s. I'm sure that you experienced it in, in grad school. Um, but the, and I don't want to sound Jordan Peterson-y here, but the uh, postmodern approach to literary criticism and the idea that there's no such thing as authorial intent, um, you are not, the author is just a conduit for social and political forces and what spills out of their pen. They didn't mean it. Uh, they have no right to say what it means. And only students and professors with, you know, their, their markers out reading over it for the, you know, deep subtext and doing deep exegesis on the text. Those are the people that can find out what it really means. Right, which I did find <laughs> entirely fascinating in graduate school because, you know, I did my MFA in creative writing. So these are like literally just stories where, you know, you wrote right. a story and you'd sit in crit class and... You'd be like, wow, hmm, I didn't know, you know, to right. use the terms de jour, I didn't sure. know I was dog whistling or virtue right. signaling <laughs> when I was writing a story. I was just writing a story. Right, or even more, I mean, basically it's things where it's like, now the author says that this is about robots, but what it's really about is the oppression of genderqueer folk in the Roman Empire. Yes. And, <laughs> and you're like, wait, well, what, what? Yeah, well, 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 one of my stories actually was about uh, two, two gay men uh, uh, who had been drafted to go fight the war in Angola, and it was called Rocket Men. And um, yeah, I mean, I was just writing a story that sort of tangentially had to do with friends of mine. You know, in South Africa, we had the draft at the time, and right. you know, we had friends who who were secretly gay. It was not a very open society at that time, and just the sort of additional trauma. I mean, I think it's probably traumatic for anyone who doesn't want to go to war to be right. drafted and forced into it, as we know, and you see the societal consequences of that. Yeah. So. It was really interesting. So I think this is going to be a fascinating episode. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, so let's dive into the tech stuff because I think that that's, uh, you know, in my current position at work, I, I actually work for a company that uh, it's called Library. It's spelled L-B-R-Y. 
Uh, check it out at lbry.com. Um, it's basically a, uh, a new type of platform that's not a platform. Uh, it's a protocol, so it means that anybody can control it, anybody can build apps on it. Um, but it's a, it's a tool for people to be able to share whatever they want um, on their own terms. And the reason that it was created the way it was is in opposition, basically, to the, the current standard, which is publishing platforms that monetize you and your data in exchange for your content. Um, so basically, the way that you pay for Facebook is by posting and giving them content. Facebook doesn't have to write anything to keep people's attention. The eyeballs stay on their platform as people tell their friends about things, share baby pictures. All that stuff is, you know, great eyeball glue for the ads to be placed next to. Yes. Um, and that's the core of the business is the ads. And it's the same thing with YouTube and, you know, Google search results really to, to a certain extent. And we can uh, – Maybe I, I haven't watched the whole Project Veritas video yet about uh, Google search engine manipulation, but there's really a lot to talk about here. Um, and we talked about this on an earlier episode, and I kind of came down on the side of private entities are allowed to do what they want. These are private entities if they want to stop people from saying certain things, if they want to ban certain words or types of images, that's totally within their purview. Um, however... The more I think about it, uh-huh. I don't know. Well, I'm, I'm not about to like recommend regulations or anything right. for them, but uh, I feel like people need to understand what these businesses are really about because we've never really been presented. I mean, think about this. It's a, it's a product that billions of people use, uh, and most people don't know anything about how it works and the value that it provides, it doesn't actually do anything for you. You are the person that creates all of the, the, the content. You create the value for them. Yeah. It, it's hard to imagine anything similar in like a consumer product I, other than, I don't know, some kind of brain implant that sucks out your innermost thoughts <laughs> and then serves up advertisements to you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a challenge. I mean, it's something I struggle with as well. And I think part of the problem for me is the definitional community standards, right? Mm -hmm. So so the way things are being censored on tech is with this nebulous idea of community standards. So somehow when you sign up to use these platforms, you have agreed to terms of use. Right. No one reads them, as we very well know. <laughs> Everyone just clicks the I it's agree button. General rule in software. <laughs> here, here we go, right? And um, from a legal perspective, there was actually, there was there case law, right? When, when end user licenses came back way back in the day, and they right. had the shrink wrap licenses with your, you know, your disc and right. everything. It was like, well, is this legally binding? Because no one signed the contract. And then, you know, in the 2000, late 1990s, it was like, okay, we have to put a button yeah. on the contract so that there is some kind of actual physical action. For a time, there was a debate whether you were going to make people actually type in their full name. Right. Then it was like, can we just have the initials? And we went through all those iterations. Now mm -hmm. we basically just have, you know, a giant corporation that says these are the rules if you want to use our stuff no one reads it everyone agrees to the rules and then we and have if you this... click no it won't install so. yeah exactly <laughs> and and it's not like you even have the opportunity to say well i would like to change these terms or right. i would like to do this or that you know it's it's an all or nothing it's it's not really a from a contractual standpoint yes you're free to use it or to not use it. Yeah. But you could also make the argument that it is not a contractually very level playing field. Right. You have no opportunity to negotiate as a consumer. Yeah. And, you just get it. And then you're stuck with these sort of community standards, which, quite frankly, have changed over the years. That would be a really interesting thing to look at. It's yeah. actually how the language has changed. But then also there's just this nebulous, sight unseen, weirdo group of, I don't know, censor control people. I, I watched a TED talk where they had a lady from, it was the Facebook government oversight group something. I mean, it was a pretty scary sounding group. And she was just talking about, yeah, how they monitor Facebook for, um, I think it was like international terrorism extremism or whatever extremism yeah. and it was like wow like if you guys are doing that level of stuff you know and also you know yeah. banning the kitten with the gun <laughs> right like, what's up well there's i mean so i think there's a lot of reasonable uh push and pull here so um one thing that is obviously true is that social media and the internet 
with the like the concept of virality didn't exist prior to Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, right? Yep. It's like that it, it wasn't around. Um, and if you look at the power that that has, the social power that that has, um, when it's applied to extremists, or, you know, whatever it is, if it's a, a you know, a Islamic terrorist or a militia group that wants to murder black people or whatever it is, um, there's a unique and much more powerful way for them to identify people that like them and people that might think like them and then advertise to them. But here's um, also <laughs> a challenge with that kind of stuff is, is I think we are ascribing certain behavior to certain behavior, right? So by way of example, uh, let's say I've liked the Antifa New Hampshire web page right. or a page on Facebook, right? That doesn't mean I'm a member or not a member or whatever. It could just genuinely be like, oh, I'm curious and I want to know what these people are up to or I want right. to know what those people are up to or whatever. But I'm not sure, you know, like if you were in a court of law at some stage, are they going to be like, well, you were a member of these groups and somehow right. guilt by association now makes you Well, I mean, that, you, you, in... you've seen that already in, in political stories here in New Hampshire where it says so-and-so, oh, they, they liked these pages. Pages. Yeah, so obviously, and it's like, mm, like I, I like a lot of, I like Granite State Progress. I right, want to know what they're up to. Yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't like yeah, like them, yeah, but, I but just, I liked them. I gave them I the thumbs up so I could see it. <laughs> um, no, but I, I guess I, I think that part of what they do as well that maybe we're missing is that, um, and this is creepy, but they monitor messages, so they monitor all of the Facebook Messenger traffic for that kind of stuff. And I mean, you can understand why, as a company, they would want to cover their ass on this front because think about, you know, there's some terrorist attack and then it comes out and there's extensive but it's not Facebook the messages. Company's responsibility. So here's oh, we the think thing, that, right? but I, but think about the news story. It turns out Facebook was essential to the shooter's plans. The shooter was radicalized through this series of messages uncovered during discovery. Here's the face. You know what I mean? Like their brand association, they're a global brand and the thing that, and they're trying to sell ads so they're, they're like a big TV network. And this is like if also at your TV network there's a basement where a bunch of crazy people teach each other how to dogfight or something. And you're like, you're like, no, no, but we're just – that's not our responsibility. We, we don't know anything about the basement. Well, <laughs> like, but the thing is, I mean, that does sort of raise the question of, you know, what is free speech and, and what is the role of these tech companies? And, right. I mean, obviously you work for a company that said, well, the role of the tech company is really just to provide the conduit beyond right. that. We can't do anything else because beyond that, if you're not just providing the conduit, then you are censoring. Right. And then well, it's and that's like, what, well, way, what are the rules of this censorship? Uh, well, the way library is structured, you literally you can't control it. It's a decentralized network uh, where anybody that's running uh, the nodes, you know, as long as there are uh, computers running the program, it's going to work, and it doesn't require on us running centralized services. Um, and, and or genuinely, depend on, not require on. <laughs> I think that that is the best way to approach it. Why do I think that? Because censoring stuff and deciding what speech is allowed and not allowed is probably the hardest thing on mm -hmm. earth to do. Although, so, I mean, real talk, though, the, what makes it hard is it makes it real hard for us to make money. You know, because we advertisers, we have a mystery box. You know, if we're respecting users privacy, it means that we don't have that deep information about, oh, well, they, they moved three months ago. They recently purchased a pillow from MyPillow.com. Uh, they, they have two children that go to these schools that we can do demographic analyses of the parts, you know, the wealth of those areas and what are their peers like and what are their peers pressuring them to do so we can advertise kids' clothes that would be relevant to the kids, to the parents. <laughs> you know, all, all of those deep ins and outs, if you respect people's privacy, you can't do it. Um, so, so that's sort of the, uh, and you can see the well, incredible the value question, of Facebook. It's all predicated on, we do not respect your privacy. It's you give us your privacy. Right. And, which, you, and you, and you, and you, and not only that, but you agree to be constrained in your speech and thought to the acceptable bound, bounds of our corporate advertisers. Right. But <laughs> also as those corporate advertisers became bigger and larger, I mean, Facebook was more free five years ago. Oh, yes. Um, I feel like in, in the battle of ideas, in the marketplace of ideas, I think uh, libertarian ideas were kind of rising up. I think people were starting to go, there are solutions from the progressive left side that make sense. And there are 
solutions from the right that make sense and how yeah. can we kind of mash those two together and I think it was it was an exciting time and then I don't know some powers that be somewhere I mean you have to assume that as we get more information about things governments must be just scratching their heads and going right. oh wow uh -oh. we didn't kind of realize that no one liked us uh -oh. at all yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whoops yeah huh. oh all these things we call subcultures are millions of people who could give a flying fig leaf about a lot of this stuff <laughs> of we're up to. We think that, yeah, I know, I know. Well, and so one interesting read I've heard on that is uh, from John McCorder, linguist from Columbia, really interesting dude, go read all of his books. He's really great. Um, but he brings up this point over and over again uh, when we're talking about like the coarsening of American discourse and etc. When was this turning point? And he's like, well... It was right around 2007, 2008. And you know what happened then? Twitter. And I, not to peg everything on one platform, but there's a really interesting case to be made that Twitter has, it incentivizes all of the worst aspects of human nature. Um, it, unlike Facebook, where things were constrained to an audience of your friends, it puts everyone's private thoughts out for everyone to see. Um, it created a whole new genre of journalism, which is this crazy person thinks this crazy thing on Twitter. Yeah, I, <laughs> I just want to stop you for one second. I don't think it's people's private thoughts, right? If you're tweeting, uh, that's a public forum, right? So, so if we were to compare it right. to something historically, we could say, imagine if all the telegrams from the past were just like everyone in the world could see every telegram. I guess, but the point isn't to communicate with an individual. The point of it is to put something out there to the world. So it's like the way I see Twitter, it's like the 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 conduit between your brain stem and the internet. And it's like <laughs> if you have like an inchoate feeling that can ex be expressed in less than 140 characters or 280 characters now, um, Twitter's the place to be. And people, all you can do is reboost or like. So it's like th there's there's very little cost uh, other than getting ratioed to posting something that's not liked, and it's almost all upside. Um, and also, it's uh, it's exposed all of these different groups to the internal language and messaging of other subcultures, which I think nobody's prepared for. Nobody's prepared to hear a bunch of doctors make jokes about dead patients but you know that they do it because they work in a line of work where like it's grim you find humor in the gallows you know right and, uh, and to, to butcher a phrase well, gallows no, humor. But I, and but, i think that's a genuine concern is that we have with all this policing and censorship and sort of thought control and all of that what we're doing is we are actually negating human nature right so you know here are the things like most jokes are either dirty racist gallows like that is what humor right. is, is it's, it's, it's I mean, literally yeah. a way to process information that that is hard yeah. to process in any other way and if you can get a laugh out of it Let's do it. You know, there's, yeah. is it Dave Chappelle oh with his gosh, new yes. show that's out? Yes, yes, yes. So I watched that last night. <laughs> I thought funny. it was hilarious. I, you know, it's it's definitely, he's pushing a whole lot of buttons and issues. But you and I went to his show together live so in Boston. And there's a lot of those jokes in there. And part of what he was saying during the show we saw is we have to be able to joke about these things. Yes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, and also to expect that everybody will always share the same values and linguistic boundaries as you is just ridiculous. I mean, so there's this idea in academia of uh, and, and outside academia of code switching. And it's the idea that you have um, different modes of speech and modes of expression and linguistic composition when you're talking to different groups of people. So, and typically, I mean, I think that it came And if into, you're Hillary Clinton, you're even saying entirely different things. Hi, y'all. <laughs> um, yes. No, but uh, I think it came in through the um, like African-American studies, gender studies departments as a concept. That's where it grew. Because the idea was there are these communities like the African-American community where you talk one way with black people and then you talk another way with white people. And um, it's interesting because the people that came up with this concept and generally the thrust of it has been code switching is bad. You should always be allowed to be your authentic self. Um, but 
I think that in a lot of ways, like your authentic self is multitudes, you know? Yeah, exactly. You're, you're a different person to all these different groups. You know, uh, when I'm at dinner with my parents, I'm a slightly different person than when I'm hanging out in my living room with my uh, roommates or housemates here. Um, and that's just human. You I mean, know, that's and, just and, being and, a human. And one's essence is the same, but like everyone right. who knows me well knows I have an incredible sailor putty mouth and right. I find it very hard to turn off, but I can do it. I usually only drop one F-bomb per show. And, um, you know, and it just makes sense because what you're really doing, I don't even think the term code switching is really the right way to look at it. Mm. It's more that you adapt to your audience as a step in decency to try and accommodate who you're talking to. If I'm talking to a nun, I'm going to try not to offend her, not because I'm being disingenuous, but because I respect her as a person. Because you meet people where they are, and that's how you, like, exist as a human. And so, (laughs) like, so I also think, and I'm sure this is probably a postmodernist construct, but it's that sort of idea of, yes, we should be our authentic selves, right? So you Mm. shouldn't, like, be, like, I, I, you know, I couldn't present something to this hypothetical nun that is entirely not me, right? right? Like if pot smoking not came gonna, up, not I would still nun. be like, right. I smoke pot. Like I'm not going to lie. Right. That's where the authenticity comes in. Right. But this idea of that you can't change your flavor or tone right. or Or if suddenly you have elevated vibe. diction that that's bad. Right. Or that, you know, and that, and it's a, uh, so uh, anyway, the, the, the point being, I think that the whole, the whole code switching thing that that's just like being human. But what I was, the point of this and where it wraps into the free speech uh, issue is that I think what's happening is we're seeing a new establishment of the standard codes of acceptable speech, and it's acting like they're universal. And just by their nature, they're not universal. There's there's a Twitter mode of speech and a Facebook mode of speech, but people are not going to change the way that they talk in their private lives and the way that they construct their words and their thoughts. So it's like it's creating this standard where they say, Basically, I mean, the culture at these places, and this, then we can wrap around the academia stuff here now, too, maybe. Mm. But the culture in these places is recent grads from elite colleges, people that went to, you know, Harvard, Brown, Yale, Columbia, Williams, Middlebury. Get, get, uh, I mean, get the I'll Nescax tell you, it's in, in City College in New York City, yeah, yeah. too. I mean, it's right. not just the elite right. schools. But even City College in New York's pretty, it's elite in its own way. I mean, it's not... Um, <laughs> you know, Missouri State or something where it's like a uh, reputation. Poor well, no, no, I'm not State. talking trash about them, but where it's a reputation for like right. a big research Understood. institution as opposed to a humanities locus. Or like Sarah Lawrence College, you know, they're yeah. great, yeah, great yeah, yeah, school, yeah. but they're, their studies, it's in the humanities. That's where the core of what they do is. So those, those schools. Anyway, and those are the people that are getting, I mean, it's not biology people that are getting hired at Twitter. It's, oh, I'm an English major and gender studies minor and blah, blah, blah. Um, well, I think part of the problem <laughs> that came in is actually the idea of hate speech, you know, and that came from Europe as far as I can tell, right, where yeah. they started to codify certain kinds of speech as hate speech. And I think that's where we went horribly, horribly wrong. Look, People say horrible things. Should they be free to say it? Absolutely. Do right. I have to listen to it? No, I don't, right? That's that's how that relationship's supposed to work, right? right? That's the trade of free speech. That's if you're in a public trade. space, yep. people can say stuff. And, and you know, and, and the tradition, Hyde Park from England, you know, people standing on a corner muttering crazy philosophies, crazy uh, Well, most of it's, it's from things. religion is where most of it, I mean, religion and politics, there were a bunch of utopian maniacs and religious splitters and these street preachers or whatever, like they were getting put in jail in Europe. That's where free, I mean, a lot of these concepts right. and come hence the, the First Amendment, right? right? Exactly, it's like exactly. freedom of expression, freedom of conscience and uh, freedom of religion. I mean, and it's then funny you're allowed it, to say anything and it doesn't say you're not allowed to say anything that'll hurt someone else's feelings. Yeah. You know, Chappelle's show is right. called Sticks and Stones and I was like, bravo, <laughs> right. sir. Well, it's, I mean, and it's funny to think too for like the modern mind that, um, and it's just kind of like the, this is like the beauty of enlightenment thought and liberty is that I think that this free speech stuff, the first, I mean, again, it was really, it was motivated by, we want to be able to talk trash about the king and we want, we want to be able to talk about different religions. I'm, uh, you know, I'm a weird Quaker. I'm allowed to be a weird Quaker and tell people to be a weird Quaker. <laughs> um, and from that very sort of like rarefied impulse of like, we wish to discuss politics and religion, you get straight out of Compton and 
the you know the FBI getting shut down for investigating uh, rappers because they talk trash about the cops. You know, it's like the 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 fruits of liberty way down the line. It's it's beautiful. I, I can't imagine that any of the people that wrote that document had any idea where this would go. Right, um, and, and so it's really, I mean, it's kind of sad and tragic. I'm going to read these stats to people just to give you a sense of how bad it actually is in college campuses. Yeah. But basically this was a Gallup poll that was published last year, and 61% of American students said that their campus climate prevented people from saying what they believe. Yep. So that's self-censorship, -censor right? Up from 54% in the previous year. Other data from the same poll may explain why. Fully, 37% said it was acceptable to shout down speakers they disapproved of. I mean, that's yeah. a weird standard, right? To prevent them from being able to be heard. Right. Uh, you know, I'm picking these words carefully. And an incredible 10% of these students approved of using violence to silence them. Yeah. So if we go to the concept, and that's from uh, last week's Economist, and so if we go with the concept of sticks and stones, these are people who are literally saying that if I don't like what you are saying, mm. I'm going to use sticks and stones to end your speech. But the right. way it's supposed to work is sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never right. hurt me. Right. Everyone's allowed to say what they think. And of That's course, what liberty and of, is. Of, of course, it's not reciprocal. If, if you say something someone else dis disagrees with, they can't hit you. Oh, no. No, no, because you're right. Yeah. And and, and, <laughs> and and so that is actually at the heart of it. That is the troubling part, right? This idea that there is a sea of people out there who truly believe there is a right way to think. And well, if you do not think the uh, right way, then you are an outcast that can be beat up well, and it's like for a, not thinking the right way. Again, it's like a, a very old fashioned idea. Like that is not part of the modern world. That is part of the dark ages, you know? Um, and another interesting read on all this is, uh, and again, the second time, John McWhorter. He's awesome. Uh, he's coming out with this book about um, swear words and blasphemy and the concept of unsayable things. Um, and he, I won't say them on the show because I try to keep a clean mouth, but uh, basically. <laughs> That's my job. <laughs> be, well, right. <laughs> but basically he says, you know, blasphemy used to be in the realm of religion. It was about Jesus, God damn it, you know, all of those things. They were, it was, it was unutterable, you know, and you would be punished if you uttered the unutterable. Um, and now uh, with the shifting religious impulses and sort of allegiances of the mass culture, um, the new blasphemy is words that are used to negatively describe oppressed or minority groups. And that's not necessarily like, it's not the end of the world. Like the, of, of all the things to be blasphemous, I would say like, yeah, that sucks. Being mean to people that are already getting hurt is pretty crappy to do. Um, but it's this interesting window into human psychology because if those things occupy that space, you have to think about these people as like Spanish inquisitors. You know, they're not... They're not regular enlightenment people. They're not regular people operating in a modern worldview anymore. They're inquisitors rooting out heresy. But also even just thinking about those categories of people, right, that, that we want to protect, which I agree is a laudable instinct. But it's like, you know, a hundred years ago, certainly in Manchester, New Hampshire, like the, the French and the Irish used to rumble. The right. poor Italians were kind of like the blacks, as I understand it, of, you know. So every time we yeah. had a wave of different immigration and a different group of people coming, it was the other. Right. And then people had to process it. So it's kind of like if we yeah, look my, at my dad told my dad's from Cleveland and he uh, his family and everybody in his neighborhood was Irish and the family, all the neighborhoods around them were Italian. And it was like Irish and Italians don't get along. You, you can't, you know, like don't date those Italian Catholic girls. They're the wrong Catholics. Right. <laughs> I mean, and, and we forget. They're not know? even a different religion. It's just like, you're a different type of Catholic, you bastard. <laughs> I mean, and, and to keep it in the optimism realm, I mean, yes, we're facing all these challenges and yes, free speech is actually 
a little bit in a downswing, but we're still free enough to have these debates. And I think really what we're just trying to do is we have these new tools that tech has provided to us and now we're grappling. And every time we grapple with ideas, our audience is getting bigger because these tools from technology have made that audience very global. Right. Right. No. And that's, I mean, and that's sort of the revolution that I think is, is spurring this new interest in constraining speech is that, Oh my God! We we just gave every idiot redneck a printing press. Yep. You know, I, that's that's what must be going on in the minds of the people that are the cultural elite that have been, you know, on really a, a two decade march to progressivism. I mean, if you think about all of the changes in culture and society, and I don't think that they're necessarily bad. I think that there's been a lot of things that are that are positive in terms of uh, expanding uh, recognition of rights of people and generally moving things away from being like cruel. I think that cruelty is uh, abominable. It's like something that should not be uh, held up as, as a value. And I think that one of the big values of progressives is like trying to reduce cruelty. But then it pops up in other places because it's also part of human nature. So all of a sudden, if you're cruel, then you deserve cruelty. And our definition of cruelty is so stretchy that all of a sudden anybody can be considered cruel. Right. Um, and, and so it's, you know, it's it's the outcome is wrong, right? Which is why I have this burning desire to with with my progressive friends in particular i'm like no you got to really like lean into the free speech part of it right. right because the only way we get rid of bad ideas is to actually argue them and then to say uh to 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 smash them right, right. to smash a bad idea so to debate it and right like so john Locke said no you you have to you to to even understand your own opinion you have to understand all of the countervailing opinions about the same thing and so, like, you know and so i think with free speech also you know the, so there's the free speech aspect but there's also the privacy aspect and i know we've talked about this before as well but snowden would say, you know, sort of your privacy and like being able to like figure out what you think, right, mm-hmm. is is an inherent human value, right? Yeah. So once we start to control speech or to say you're not allowed to say that or you're not allowed to think that, that's a thought crime, yeah. right? Then we really truly are marching down this like Orwellian path. Yeah. And so for people who now hang on, hang on, hang on, but think about the '40s, okay? You weren't allowed to be a communist. Was that a good thing or a bad thing? I think uh, it was probably a bad thing, Mm -hmm. right? Telling anyone you're not allowed to whatever seems awful. I mean... Makes it cooler. (laughs) Always makes it cooler. I mean, I thought it was funny, a little aside story quickly, but, you know, when when I was immigrating to America, you know, you have to fill out all these forms, and I had won a green card in the lottery, And when we were on the airplane coming over, so all the paperwork had been done, but we had these big envelopes of manila envelopes, stacks of files and everything. And on the form, it actually said, have you now, you know, it was very much been been a member of the (laughs) Communist Party. And I was like, well... I voted for Nelson Mandela. He was the member of the ANC. That was the African National Congress, and they were card-carrying commies. I mean, I was young. You know, I was 21, 22 at the time, so don't hold it against me. You know, and quite frankly, at that time, I was like... I don't know. Communism well, seems better than apartheid. I was, was going to say, know? A, lot of, a lot of times you're served up uh, <laughs> two, two bad options. Two so. you know. And, and honestly, like, I didn't see it through that economic lens at the time. And I was like, do I lie on the form? Like, which is worse? Is it worse being right. a racist or a communist? And I was And like, also a secret communist. Right? And, and, I mean, I was shocked. I will say this. It was 1995, probably at the time, 94 maybe. And I was I'm shocked just like, that was still on there. Wow, it's, me too. The Soviet Union fell already. Come on. Right. <laughs> and you know, and that is a good point to make is part of pushing back on these things is because once the government does something, or even once, you know, the crony capitalists at this stage grab these powers for themselves, we're acquiescing things that are important yeah. rights. And we are acquiescing our right to free speech on these tech platforms. And that's, uh, I, I think it was Milton Friedman who said, uh, there's nothing as permanent as a temporary government program. Exactly. But <laughs> <laughs> Have you now, or will you ever be? Right, I know. Senator McCarthy shaking his finger at you from the grave. Right. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it really is. And, and I mean, 
mean, I think the flip side is kind of there right now, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's like, have you now, or will you ever be, have you, you know, have you ever been a member of, and then insert whatever, like, the wrong groups right. are right now, right. right? Or have you had this bad idea, or did you ever say something? Wasn't there a guy in the news this week who was like, I'm not racist, but I've said some racist things. <laughs> and I was like, okay, you need a better PR person, Yeah, that's not what you say. <laughs> um, Lots of racist things come out of my mouth, but my heart, it's totally not racist. But is it, I mean, it was Evan UQ, right? The musical with the Everyone's puppets. a little bit racist. Everyone's yes. a little bit racist, and the internet is for porn. I mean, <laughs> there you have it, folks. Well, I mean, and that's, I, I think that what we're kind of grappling with, too, is there's a core issue, and we, we touched on it earlier, but uh, we're humans, you know? We're these social monkeys that have our brains arranged in certain ways, um, usually to work within a tribe of a hundred-ish other monkeys. And we form close communal bonds with the people on the inside. And you build a wall around the people on the outside, whether it's, you Oh, know, here we have Brinkus buildings or, of walls. No, no, but like I... <laughs> And you can humans can work to transcend and overcome their biological programming, and you can do it. But it's like a lot of work, and I think that it, in a lot of ways, it's too much to expect for a lot of people when they're busy just trying to live to tell them that they also have to rearrange their mental furniture so that you block out the bad words. You know what I mean? Well, the thing so is like, also you're dealing with these mass amounts of people, right? right? If we're talking about a platform like Twitter, which is literally global, right? So right. we're talking Billions. seven to eight billion people in the world. Let's say two billion are using it. Yeah, I th well, probably... I think Facebook is 1.4 billion I want okay, to say. Okay, so so anyway, I mean yeah. we're we're up to like a lot of people. Yeah. Should 1.4 billion people think the same way about things? Hell no. Okay. I mean we we pretty much think I mean, honestly, like I work with a movement of twenty thousand people. Yeah. We can't even get twenty thousand people very to intellectually agree diverse. <laughs> on basically anything other than the non aggression principle. Right. Which, you know, is a good one. I well, mean, that's I a guess, pretty solid one to run with. And that's kind of the, the question that's being raised, too, is, uh, you know, what's the, what's the bare minimum common ground for a productive and successful community? And I think that uh, with Twitter and Facebook, I mean, the, the, these are like the growing pains of trying to find the bare minimum common ground for billions of people, you know, which has never really been tried before. There hasn't been like a, it's, it's the closest thing that we've gotten actually, Oh boy, here's a flight of fancy. It's the closest thing we've gotten actually to global government in that it's yes, something that I everyone agree. has to agree in. It's people from all different cultures and walks of life, all different geographical areas, but they all have to come together on this singular platform that has a minimum standards for uh, use. So like I, I think that it's almost an insurmountable human challenge. Like we're, we're they're they're caught in the crosshairs, and this is why I, I don't see a lot of these tech companies surviving long term. Um, and they never do. Everything right. that anyone was worried about in the '90s, I don't know. I forget who the boogeymen were then. Probably Microsoft well, towards the end and whatever, right? So also everyone, the Japanese. Yeah, the Japanese are going to destroy and, us. You know, and, <laughs> and then there was the antitrust things on Oracle. I mean, right. you could look at every antitrust thing per decade and just see that someone's got their knickers in a knot. They're going to go for that, and then nothing happens. It moves on. Right. You know, would cable TV to whatever, right? Because that's just how we are. But what I wanted to say with regard to the sort of global idea, one distinction we need to make, right, is the criminal criminalization of speech mm. versus saying, oh, well, generally we don't like this. I don't like people who say horrible things about other people or who incite violence or whatever. Right. And in fact, I would rather not hear it, see it, and those are not the people I associate with or hang out with, right? Do I think they should be able to say it? Sure. Do I want to, you know, no. But then we're talking about criminalized speech, right? right? Where you're actually saying, Oh, wait a second. We're going to lock you up for your speech. Right. So there was this court case, right, in 1919. It's the famous uh, case about fire Sh in a... Schenk or Schnack? Yeah, I sh can't... Schnink. Schnanky. Schnink. <laughs> uh, versus U.S. And that was the Oliver Wendell Holmes case, right? It's a really famous one about yelling fire yeah. in the theater, which I just made the connection. You know, the First Amendment... Uh, 
people who work on campuses. Yeah. Uh, Greg oh, Lou, fire. Yeah. Yeah, it's fire. And I'm like, oh, I didn't. Yep. I just made that connection. But right there, they talked about if there's a clear and present danger or if there's a risk or threat to public safety or other interests that are yeah. serious or imminent, then suddenly we, as the state, can control your speech. Oh, and let's be clear, too. In this case, I mean, we're not Mr. Snake didn't <laughs> um, shout fire in a crowded theater. That was a argument used by Holmes in his uh, his uh, yeah. ascent, I think. Yeah. Anyway, um, and that sort of became the the common wisdom. But do, do you know what the underlying offense was? Oh. Oh, this is this is a real ass burner. This pisses. I mean, I I'm probably sorry. do know, but this, you go. This maddens me every time I hear that stupid phrase. The 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 underlying case, Mr. Snake, was a. <laughs> A Jehovah's Witness, if I remember correctly, and he was promoting that people burn their draft cards for World War One. He was an anti-draft activist, um, and he—I mean, I, the reason I think he's a Jehovah's Witness is that he get in trouble for stuff like not saying the Pledge of Allegiance too. And this seems Quaker or Jehovah's Witness, one of those religions that's like screw you, state. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, so he—he he wasn't shouting fire in crowded theaters. He was telling people to burn their draft cards. Um, and so when you put it in that context, it's pretty amazing that they say that that was a threat to the public order and safety. I mean, it, it's it's abominable. Right. Like that that is it's it, it is really, an abominable really decision. Bad decision. And I would love to see uh, a nicely stacked Supreme Court that would overturn that because I think it's time for someone to go back and to take a look at it. And the reason I say that is because when they talk about the uh, serious or imminent danger yeah. sort of exception, we see that being applied now quite consistently um, there was an example in New Hampshire John Thomas the kid who was yeah, in right the in high Manchester. school right yeah. who uh, Hillsborough actually oh, but sorry. he um, <laughs> you know he made a joke on the day of his graduation he said am I the only one bringing a gun to graduation it was a joke people were laughing his friends didn't take it seriously and someone narked him out to the principal the principal right. called the cops the cops showed up this kid doesn't even own a gun right so once you have ascertained that there is clearly no imminent danger. That whole issue should have been over. Instead of that happening, they put him in jail. Yeah. They set his bail for $10,000, and he spent nine months in jail for speech. Right. That they used this kind of language to keep in jail. That is yeah. not an outlier situation anymore. That is happening in schools across New Hampshire. It's happening in schools across America. Right. It's an issue. And so this is actually a really... Important and it gets swept thing. under the rug because I think that people tend to not, they hear gun, school, all of a sudden, well, it's beyond the pale, that kid's got to go, you know? Right. And it's, it, I don't know, it, it is interesting with words. Like, so for example, uh, there's a song by the Vandals uh, on their Christmas album called A Gun for Christmas. <laughs> and <laughs> it's all about, <laughs> I, one of the chorus lines is like, I'll get a gun for Christmas to protect my other gifts. But... <laughs> 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 that so, dude understands he's property, my property I, I've, rights. I've always found that to be hilarious. But say high school Brink, who has social media because he's time traveled, uh, posts his his vandal song for Christmas. Am I a th am I creating a clear and present danger? I might be. I'm talking I, about guns on Christmas. I, <laughs> I, I mean, and, and honestly, I think it depends on the eye of the beholder. I mean, we do know that the state is monitoring people's Facebook messages, right. feeds, whatever. And we are seeing more and more cases where people are being arrested for even sharing memes. So right. it's not even like your independent thought where you're like, oh, I'm going to go do this. Right. You're Somebody like, oh, is... here's some random weirdo funny thing. Or yeah. here's, you know, some conspiracy theory, you know, right, uh, right. you know, like whatever it's, you know, I like conspiracy theory. Well, and the other interesting thing too, that and it happens on, uh, on Facebook. There's, so there's this battle now between Snopes and the Babylon Bee. Um, if you're not familiar, Snopes is like a fact checking group that they've been contracted by. Fact yeah, checking. Right. So, Carla's giant air quotes. <laughs> I, I believe that Facebook has like an exclusive contract with them to fact check things in general. Um, the Babylon Bee is a satire. Christian, yeah, it's a satire site founded by a Christian guy. Originally, it was like a lot of really funny, um, like deep cut religious jokes, which is why I thought it was so funny. Um, and then they've expanded into sort of more general cultural stuff. Um, but, you know, it's like the onion, but with a little bit of a different uh, slant. And so 
Snopes keeps trying to fact check Babylon B articles and they're like, <laughs> we're a satire site. We're definitely a satire site. And so they've done these things now where they're like writing these big letters that are very apologetic, that are very funny and tongue in cheek. And but there's this back and forth uh, between uh, the groups, because I think that part of free speech, too, is that there's an element of the you know cultural elite, intellectual elite, if you will that just doesn't think people are smart enough to handle things. And they think, well, these dummies are going to read the fake story and believe them. And I would never fall for that. And, and, but... and some dummies do. But right. you know what? A lot of the cultural elite actually fall for the dummy stuff. Yeah, and, and you know like, what? A oh! lot of our, a lot of our like... cultural baseline stuff is a stupid lie to begin with, like saying you can't shout fire in a crowded theater and that the Supreme Court had that case because someone shouted fire in a crowded theater. No, you can't shout crowded fire in a crowded theater. Also, you can't oppose the draft. Right. Yeah. That's the the core. People don't know so much of this stuff. And you're – anyway, I'm a bit (laughs) ranty at the moment. It's very frustrating because uh, you always assume that everyone's dumb. And I have – you know, Everyone assumes everyone else is dumb and that they're not. Everyone else is dumb. And there is a fact. I mean there is the truth to the the bottom 50 percent of the bell curve of intellect and ability – that's half the people. <laughs> but, so there's dumb people out there. Um, but we're all humans and we got to like treat each other with a certain baseline level of respect. And I, I don't think that you can build a society by treating people like children who need, you know, school marms to tell them the right and wrong way to think. People are independent. Uh, they care about their communities and what they think. But people need to be able to come to their own conclusions about uh, what they believe. And telling them that they can't and telling them that they can't express themselves, frankly, I mean, with the whole alt-right thing and, like, tongue-in-cheek racism and Nazism and all that stuff, I get it. For teenagers, if you're if you're told you can't do something, if you're told that's bad, ooh, that's bad news, no right-thinking, respectable person would engage with those ideas, oh, my God, it's like candy. Right. You're like, like oh, let me I go can, with my red flag in my, you I would you know, love to become edgier. Tell yeah. me more. I'm 15. Right. Yep. You know? Um, and, and it's the same same effect with uh, drugs. You know, it's the whole fruit of the, like, the forbidden fruit is the most enticing. Um when and we you, actually know that, statistically speaking, in states where marijuana and cannabis has been legalized, whether medical or recreational, that drug de- teenage use drops. Yeah. And that's just that same thing. So really, you know, for my friends out there who think speech should be controlled or that, you know, we need to do something, really the best thing you can do is just let it run its course. Right. It's going to it's going to be passe in a couple of years, right? All this sort of edgy, let me say all this edgy stuff, right? It'll be right? different edgy. I mean, it's like when I was a teenager, it was edgy to, you know, oppose global capitalism and the WTO. Because it was like global capitalism was delivering incredible fruits of wealth and well-being to everyone across the world. So, like, boy, you have to be really out there to be against it. But, <laughs> uh, I mean, it's really fascinating if you look at history to sort of see whatever people have their knickers in a knot yeah, what's with. Forbidden? And, it's, and it just – it moves and it sways and it's – you know, you'll see it with the with the political races now as well. You see a lot of these candidates, especially the ones who are like – older than grandpa who are all in the race, you know, and you can find their quotes from years ago. And people actually back before everyone lost their minds, people were actually agreeing on things that are now proposals where people are like, we could never do that. But 30 years ago when we should have done them, they were great ideas. And actually the more I think about this too, I mean, so, and everything goes in cycles, but like, like I was saying, it's been an amazing like 20 years for progressive thought and think about how much more accepting of like gay, gay people, like the whole LGBT community. uh, All of that is so much more out in the open and accepted. Nobody, I mean, like I'm sure teenagers still do and I'm sure that it's different in coastal places than other places or whatever but like you know you don't you don't call people gay as an insult now it seems like teenagers are like that's so gay yay you know what i mean like so like that's totally shifted but then you see at the same time now there's a straight pride parade in boston like people when you're told that you need to do a thing there's a certain temperament that says suck it get out of my face I'm not going to do it. I think that's (laughs) naturally a response to a reduction in your rights, right? So once you start telling people to do or not do things, you inevitably Mm. have reactionary things. I don't know if it's about reduction in rights or more of like – it's not even – it's being told the right way to live. 
And being told that what you believe is the right way to live is not only like incorrect, but hurtful. And you look around and you say, well, my community isn't hurtful or, or based on hurting people and my family isn't hurt, you know. So like, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to go further <laughs> into the refuge of the thing that I'm already into, you know. Um, I well, think it would be it would be one thing if it was like, so for example, in Canada with the human rights code and the whole like, you know, trans pronoun thing being a hate crime that you can go to jail for. Uh Boy, I mean, I, I well, we're, we're seeing it right now globally. That, that's been the, the global push has been in that direction. And now there's a global right wingish, uh, culturally conservative backlash. Um, so be careful what you wish for. Right, exactly. Be careful what you try and make other people do. Don't try and create the world in your own image. Worry about you and yours. Right. Do you do the right thing for you and yours and just let everyone else do whatever they want to do. Well, and the world is just so full of different cultures, subcultures, you know, uh, different also, constructions of meaning. Like, you got to let people do their thing. But, I, you know, so here was an example in New Hampshire that just recently came up. So the DMV here in New Hampshire and all their <laughs> wisdom in the past week decided to retract this poor lady license plate so her vanity plate on her her car which she had had for almost 20 years said you know it's the letter p and the letter b and then the number four and then w e g o so p before we go right which is basically for anyone who has kids or has driven vast distances with yep. anyone it's because, you know, are we there yet? And someone needs to pee 10 minutes it's after you It's a valid dictum. The house. <laughs> yes. So she's had it on her car for 20 years. And the DMV, I don't know, they were going through stuff. And they were like, you know, uh-uh. We, we have a rule that says you're not allowed to have anything that deals with, I believe the term was excre excrement. Okay. But, um, it, it, you know, so they decided that somehow this now was beyond the pale and they sent the poor lady like a letter and they're like, we're taking away your vanity plates. Yeah. So she went to the media, good for her. And I heard this morning that uh, Governor Sununu actually intervened, <laughs> yes, right? Yes, reinstating the plates. Reinstating the plates. Now, you know, we could have a separate conversation about whether that is, you know, <laughs> an executive function. But I'm actually grateful. <laughs> I think grateful. it is. That's part of the administrative state. You I know, mean... because it's it's sort of saying, hey, let's not, like, take these things overboard. But then, yeah. of course, there was another First Amendment case, uh, free speech case here, probably four or five years ago by this stage. So this was a the dude. The other vanity plate one? Yeah, so it was a vanity plate. Uh, his plate was called Cops Lie. Right. And so this dude had a bad run-in with some police and uh, had a negative experience and decided he was going to exercise his First Amendment right yeah. to express what he believes to be a truth, that being that cops lie. Um, the DMV apparently did not like that i don't think it actually went against any of their like rules Well, they, they didn't have any rules that was the thing is that you could do whatever so now it's like oh god we have to come up with rules that are legally legitimate but also make it so this guy can't have this license plate right so they tried to do that and to <laughs> his that credit needle. he fought it all the way to the new hampshire supreme court and the new hampshire supreme court correctly in my opinion was like Dude, because say cops lie on his license plate. Yeah. Now, would you put that on your car? Does that create probable cause to get pulled <laughs> over more? Or is that just a, you know, kind of a warning to cops to be like, ah, I'm not pulling that Don't guy Don't spend over. the time, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then also, I mean, obviously you could put that on a bumper sticker. So the question is, it's because it's the state is producing this uh, official document that has that on it. So, Which I think that they can do that with company names, too. They can say that your company name is obscene. And oh, you really? Can't, yeah. Oh, they, didn't they? They there banned There was the FC UK brand, uh, that fashion brand. There was that. And then wasn't there like some, um, I forget if it was a punk band, but it was some band from, they had Asians in their title. Do you remember this case? Oh. It was also a free speech case. And I want to say they, uh, I'm not going to get the facts straight. Was so it, let's not just Asian put a Dub pin Foundation. No, it was like something where, oh, I don't, I, I'm going to get this wrong and just end up sounding horribly either racist or not racist or whatever. I just, uh, some, uh, someone in the comments who's listened this far in today's <laughs> podcast, <laughs> Google it and let us know. Well, I can think of one that was on Asian Man Records that has 
I mean, their name is it's it's a bunch of uh, Asian immigrants, and their band name is a racial epithet for Asian people. The yes. blank E's. Yeah, um, that's the one. Yes, and they're a great band. So here they're we so are, good. and they have this great song called Asian Pride. That's so good. Anyway, um, well, here we are on an Asian Man show. Is great. <laughs> <laughs> about free speech, where Brink and I are both equally careful about offending uh, anyone. Well, and again, it's because it's blasphemy. And I mean, part of it is because we believe, I mean, there is a truth. Like, I don't want to use a word that's going to, like, if somebody heard me say that, make me think that I think less of them as a human. And I, I don't think that that's an unfair constraint on my speech. Um but what if I did want to make people see that I thought less of, like, what if I actually was a racist? You're allowed to be that. And what if you actually want to use bad words to describe people to hurt them? You're also allowed to do that. Um, I mean, here's the I, thing, I wouldn't, right? But you're allowed to, like, that's that's free society, unfortunately. Well, it's well, one of the freedom, one of the costs. freedom is not just the freedom to, like, do nice things. Freedom is also, unfortunately, the freedom to do kind of, you know, nasty things in and, a lot of and, ways. and be a horrible person. And and so the societal way that we solve those problems is to through society, not through the state or criminality, but through our own behavior and modeling of our behavior to let people know, you know, that's not cool, right? Yeah. So you marginalize those people. So right. eventually, I don't know, we're going to have some city-state somewhere where, I don't know, all the, like, really nasty Nazis and racists can go. I, I'm hoping they get someplace in the desert. Well, there was a, a, apologies in advance to the people of Alabama, but there's this great book uh, called Schrodinger's Cat by Robert Anton Wilson. And the this woman, uh, it's, it's a really weird book. This woman becomes president. Um, from the Purity of Essence Party, which is like a riff off of Doctor Strangelove, but uh, they she she establishes that um, there's no more violent crimes allowed. Basically, if you commit a violent crime or uh, or like a intolerant overt racist act, you can either go to jail or you can go to hell. <laughs> and hell is what we're now calling Alabama. <laughs> and there's a big wall around it. Oh, wow. <laughs> and you can live freely in your own terrible way there, but you just can't come back into the United States. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but no, really, I mean, I do, like, with, with cultural movement, there are part, like, there's some people that are always going to be holdouts on this stuff. and. Uh, but it's also, for me, it sort of goes back to the concept of almost the right of conscience. I think we talked about this a little bit in the past, and, and it's something I think we need to start to delve into more, is this sort of idea of their, the right of conscience is, is a... It's a really good one, and it's in the New Hampshire Constitution, it's in the U.S. Constitution, and we need to really... What does that mean? It means, you know, your right to think and do what you want. And I think we should be, like, claiming that right more to say that the way we, we can police these things. And I guess to some extent that is what the tech companies are doing is they're saying these are our community standards and you can stick to them. I just think the community standards are too nebulous. Right. And we don't have any control over who is actually monitoring these right. things. There's and no appeal process. There's no... And on like, top of that, too... It's just not working. Yeah, and on top of that, too, I mean, there are all of the elements of... Um, Manipulation. I mean, that's the outside of the social media network stuff. I think that that's where there's real free speech questions. Uh, it's that in search results, apparently, and again, I have to watch this Project Veritas video, but um, apparently by their own admission, they, they manipulate search results to put stuff that they don't like on the second page. And, you know, I used to work for a digital agency, and one of the jokes they always told was, where's the best place to hide a dead body? on the second page of Google search results. Yeah. and Because and, <laughs> nobody's ever going to go there. But that's also something where if you're someone like me, and certainly I hope some of our listeners, then it's like, well, I often start my <laughs> reading right. on page two of yeah. Google search. Yeah. No, I mean, and they have, all these companies, they have a very difficult job because there is also the, the calculus of like what's most popular is also not always right. So the most popular page about a topic could be dead wrong about it. And they do have some interest in like... Only if it's Babylon B or right, Snopes. Right, right, right. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm just trying to think of like, you know, if the most popular version of a, of a history page about some historical event has glaring factor, you know, inaccuracies in there, um, 
that's not to anyone's benefit. So like you can understand the impetus for them to sort for accuracy and try to gauge what that is. But when you bring in that, as we were discussing that, you know, recent grad of elite institutions mindset, then it goes from being like a truth seeking mission into a justice mission. Um, and we want truth and justice, not one or the other. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, and we can certainly talk about that when we talk about the righteous mind, which we'll probably be doing in the next couple yes. of weeks. I I'm, love I'm, that book. I'm three quarters of the way through. I'm plugging my way through okay. and, and we'll definitely get to that. I'm and, very excited. And to, those morality matrices. I feel like we could do a whole show on that because it's, uh, I'm assuming we are going yes. to do a whole show on that. No, I, I, I can't wait. Cause I think that's going to, um, it's, it's a worldview and sort of like intellectual intellectual frame to think about these issues that for me makes it less stressful and more like how can we help each other um and really for people who are interested obviously the the author of that was jonathan Haidt, yes. and uh he and the guy we mentioned earlier from fire greg lukianoff uh they wrote a great book called the coddling of the american mind yep. that talks a lot about some free speech issues on campus but basically i mean in at the heart of it you know what? If you love freedom, you got to love it with the good and the bad. Right. Some of it is bad. How do we get rid of bad? Is we wash it out with good, but we wash it out with, with both truth and morality and justice, not just one or the other. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for listening today. We really appreciate you spending some time with us. And uh, we will talk to you again soon. Peace out. Bye.